Hello and welcome. It's me. It's Eric Erickson. I'm glad y'all are with me today. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. I feel compelled to do this uh, because, you know, I'm a believer in radio. I mean, I love radio. Everybody keeps telling me, you should just be a podcaster. You make so much money in podcasting. I want to be with you live on radio. Uh, You know, I've got a podcast for the show. If you miss the show, you can get the podcast, and I would love for you to get the podcast. Uh, the more subscribers I have, the better I do overall in, in spreading my radio show around the country and also uh, getting access to people. If you text the word show to 33777, you can get it on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play. I send you all the links. Apple, Google, Spotify, text show to 33777. Uh, happy to have you on the podcast, but I love radio. One of the reasons I love radio is what's happening right now. If you're east of the Mississippi and north of I-20, the interstate that runs from, what, South Carolina all the way over to Texas, there is a massive winter storm coming north of I-20 east of the Mississippi. And wherever you are, you need your radio station because if power goes out, you can get radio in your car or on your phone without burning up your, your battery stream and video. But it's a bad storm. In fact, there's a story out. Uh, I just saw this story uh, hitting the wires. Uh, Saturday night is an NFL playoff game, and it is expected to be a, the most one of the most frigid games in NFL history. Only a handful of games in postseason history have been played in weather colder than the matchup that's set to take place in Buffalo, New York. The, it is going to be a a brutal, brutal game. Um, who is I? I can't even. It's going to be the Patriots and and the Bills. Yes, uh, Patriots and the Bills. It is expected, are y'all ready for this? It is expected to be three to four degrees Fahrenheit. Three to four degrees Fahrenheit. That Now, there's no snow predicted. That's good because, you know, lake effect snow in, in the Buffalo, New York area is insane. Three to four degrees during the game. That's insane. Um yeah, I'm just I'm I'm fascinated. Uh, this is this is AccuWeather. Uh, a mark of four degrees would make it the second coldest NFL wild card round playoff game of all time, second only to the matchup between the Seahawks and the Vikings in 2016, which was six degrees below zero at kickout kickoff. Moreover, a game time temperature below eight degrees would make this game the second coldest Bills home game in franchise history, behind only the zero degree kickoff temperature on January 15, 1994, for a playoff game against the Raiders who were then in Los Angeles. At this point, the Bills' home venue is known as Rich Stadium. It's going to be cold, put it that way. And this cold is going to affect the entire eastern seaboard, everywhere east of the Mississippi, so just keep your radios on, keep your cars charged, keep your phones charged, power can go out, ice storms, all that. So anyway, i got to move on now, but I'm trying to do my due diligence to keep you people safe this weekend who may not realize there's a massive winter storm hitting all the way down into Georgia and the Carolinas. Okay, those of you on the phones, stick around. I will get to you this segment. Uh, I got other stuff, though, I want to get to first. And before I get to anything else, well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do that in a short segment. Um, I want to talk about an article that Rick Perry, and I should have, you know, I should have reached out to him. Um, you know, people in politics call other people their friends we generically these days call people we are acquainted with people who are acquaintances we call them friends 
And oftentimes you do have friends, uh, and and sometimes they're just acquaintances. You have to distinguish between the two. But but who are your real friends? Uh, one of mine is Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas and energy secretary. He is an actual friend. He and his wife are. They are. I mean, my gosh, they are prayer warriors and encouragers for my family. Uh, I will get random phone calls from him and text messages from him. Uh, that are just meant to encourage me. I, I love the man dearly. He and his wife are two of the greatest people I have ever known in politics. And it is a a shame that he never got elected president. He would have been one of the best presidents the country ever saw. Nonetheless, he was a fantastic governor of Texas and a wonderful energy secretary. He has a piece and real clear policy. The headline is what I've got in common with Stacey Abrams. <laughs> oh, yes. Stacey Abrams and I have a lot in common. We're both proud Southerners. We both hail from the only two states with schools that beat the Crimson Tide this season. We both think Joe Biden made the wrong VP pick. We both believe we won gubernatorial elections. Of course, only one of us is right on that last point, but as an Aggie, I respect the power of a healthy self esteem. We now have one more thing in common. We both skipped the Biden-Harris phony election reform show in Atlanta. Not that I was invited. What would a three-term major state governor who presided over historic expansion of voting and minority group participation in voting know about elections anyway? But Stacey Abrams was invited, and the fact she didn't come tells you how much uh, dead-on arrival the White House's elections agenda really is. The motivation for Abrams' no-show is twofold. No more than two years ago, she was openly campaigning to become Joe Biden's vice presidential pick, transparently attempting to leverage liberal media into forcing her to pick her. It didn't work, and now she has an opportunity to return the snub. She's drawing with her an array of Georgia-based left-wing advocacy groups who have declared that they, too, will refuse to attend the president and vice president's Atlanta event on the grounds that the White House has been too slow and too tentative in advancing their agenda. The second element to the absenteeism is the fact that the president, the vice president, and their elections agenda are profoundly unpopular in Georgia. Stacey Abrams is campaigning for governor there again and wants to win. She would say again on that point too. And there's no compelling reason for her to tie herself to the negative ratings deadweights that helm her national party. Perry is right on this. Uh, you should know there is an inordinate amount of pushback from the Abrams team on their refusal to go to Biden's event. She claims she had a scheduling conflict, that she couldn't get out of her pre-existing appointment. And she's very adamant about that, but she won't tell anyone what that appointment was. Maybe it was a doctor. Maybe she's getting her hair done. You know, they charge you now. If you skip your haircut, a lot of places now they'll charge you, and and uh, it's hard to get back in these days. I got a great barber. Uh, I, I go to this place in Atlanta called the Commodore. My barber there, Aaron, is so popular these days that it's almost impossible to get an appointment with him unless you book about a month out. He had somebody give him a negative review online uh, because he, the guy was a long-term client, and, and Aaron couldn't work him in. And he literally could I mean, he can't work me in, and I'm a famous person. He's slammed with work, and it's good for him. He's a fantastic barber. He deserves 
the notoriety. He deserves the clientele. Maybe Stacey Abrams is using him, and, and she knew that she couldn't uh, get out of her appointment without having a book like a month out. She needed that could be it. Maybe it was a doctor's appointment. I wonder how soon her her rivals of the Democratic Party start questioning. Maybe she's got a health problem that we don't know about. It's only a matter of time. They always do that. Rivals in politics, regardless of party, do that sort of stuff. But she did not want to attend. And now she's vigorously pushing back, saying, no, no, no. I support this. I support this. Truly, I support this. I support this. Not, I support Joe Biden, but I support voting. We all know you support voting rights reform. It's what you've campaigned on for years, which makes it hyper-remarkable that you chose not to attend the event. You did that. And Rick Perry is right for highlighting that she refused to do it. Now, that gets me from Rick Perry to Peggy Noonan. And... My goodness, she did not like his speech. You know, Peggy Noonan wrote some of the most famous presidential speeches in American history. She worked for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Peggy Noonan is a wonderful human being. Uh, I, I Every time I get together with Peggy Noonan, which is not very often, we have a wonderful time. She is a super person, and, and I just I adore her. I always have adored her. She and George Wheeler are two of the people. When I was a kid, I thought, when I grow up, I want to write like them, and I don't. They're too good. But let me read you some of this. It is startling when two speeches within 24 hours, neither much heralded in advance, the second wouldn't even have been given without the first, leave you knowing you have witnessed a seminal moment in the history of an administration, but it happened this week. The president's Tuesday speech in Atlanta on voting rights was a disaster for him. By the end of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's answering speech on Wednesday, you knew some new breakpoint had occurred, that President Biden might have thought he was just crooning to part of his base, but the repercussions were greater than that. He was breaking in some new way with others and didn't know it. It is poor political practice when you fail to guess the effects of your actions. He meant to mollify an important constituency, but instead he filled his opponents with honest indignation and I suspect encouraged it in a fractured group to find some unity. And, you know, I've been saying this. Peggy Noonan and I agree. Biden didn't help his base because he can't pass the voting bill. It's dead. He can't persuade Manchin and Cinema. And in fact, he further alienated them by suggesting they were racists if they oppose him. But he united Republicans across the board. From Liz Cheney to Marjorie Taylor Greene, they are united against this. From Mitt Romney to Ted Cruz, they are united against this. This is how Peggy Noonan concludes, and this is on the money. When national Democrats talk to the country, they always seem to be talking to themselves. They are of the left, as is their constituency, which wins the popular vote in presidential elections. The mainstream media through which they send their messages is of the left. The academics, historians, and professionals they consult are of the left. They get in the habit of talking to themselves in their language in a single looped conversation. They have no idea how they sound to the non-left. So they have no idea when they are damaging themselves. This week in Georgia, Mr. Biden damaged himself and strengthened and may even have taken a step in unifying the non-Democrats who are among their countrymen 
and who are, in fact, the majority of them. Now, some people say, wait a second, how this is there's a big conflict here. She writes that uh, Biden's constituency wins the popular vote in presidential elections. And then there are a majority of countrymen who are now against Biden. How can this be? Well, a lot of people sit out the election. They don't vote. They don't get inspired to vote. Liberals flood the elections. They get excited to vote against Republicans. They want to stop conservatives. And they might just have united a majority of the country against them by daring to say that anyone who disagrees with Biden's agenda on voting is racist. Because most Americans are having trouble putting food on the table and making ends meet due to inflation. And to call them racist because that's their concern instead of a federal grab of elections by the Democrats probably is burning bridges in ways they don't anticipate. I think that's probably true. And the Democrats would be well advised. They need to rethink their path here. Now, let's see. Uh, you know what? Uh, I am. I'm sorry. I, I, I've got to do some clock management here, so I'm going to take a time out. I'll be back. We'll get to your phone calls. Just trust me. Hang out. 877-973-7425. I support the filibuster. I think we need to keep the filibuster. I, I think they should should keep the filibuster, regardless of who's in power. When the Republicans controlled everything, I had a lot of friends saying, well, it's time to get rid of it, time to get rid of it. You know the Democrats are going to do it. They haven't done it. I think that the Republicans, the moment they take back the Senate, should move to kill the filibuster, not to actually do it, but to force Chuck Schumer to run down and say, whoa, 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 we we don't actually want to do this now. After spending two years saying we need to get rid of the filibuster, the moment Republicans take power, make a motion to kill the filibuster and watch those same Democrats turn about and get them on record as being a bunch of partisan political hypocrites. I just, I think it would be hilarious. Have all the Republicans and Democrats together say, nope, think we're going to keep the filibuster the moment Republicans do it. And then in the future, use that if the Democrats ever do try to scuttle it against the rules of the Senate to make a case in court that they're violating well-settled precedent in the Senate. That, that's my theory. I'm going to go to the phones here. The phone number 877-973-7425. Chris, you're going to be up next. Thanks for being patient with me. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Eric? Great. What's going on? So I had a question. It just kind of dawned on me. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but did I not hear you say the other day, or maybe it was someone else, that uh, the CDC was going to recognize that natural immunity was the equivalent of the antivirus? Yeah, they are. That's the case. What about the mandate with all of these nurses and everything? I, I think it's absurd they're not recognizing natural immunity for many of them. And in fact, you know, there was that report in California that they're making some COVID-positive nurses uh, come back who haven't gotten the, the vaccine because of natural immunity. But people who refuse to get the vaccine, they're they're firing. It, it's, it's hypocritical. It's bizarre. It's against the science. Uh, more and more, even the FDA and the CDC are recognizing natural immunity gives you a lot of immunity against the virus. Not only that, there are some studies in some countries. These studies are in dispute, but there are some studies in some countries that natural immunity lasts far longer than uh, vaccinated immunity. That being said, uh, Glenn Beck, the National Talk Radio Show host, he has COVID for the second time. He never got vaccinated. He got COVID. Uh, COVID went away, and now he has it again. 
So his natural immunity did not work. In fact, a lot of people are finding the data overwhelmingly suggests in the Omicron variant that it is not uh, the Omicron variant bypasses natural immunity and vaccinated immunity because it's just so different at this point in the process of mutation. Stephen in Dayton, Ohio, you're going to be next. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. What's going on? Well, I just wanted to comment in Ohio. I, my kids are on a school choice voucher here in Ohio. I live in Dayton city and you know, the city schools are not very good and they give vouchers for the failing school districts and for ones that are low income. And we love it. I mean, we get to go to a little Christian classical school in the area and we can take our money with us. And currently there's a new lawsuit in Ohio where they're trying to say it's unconstitutional in the state constitution. And I just find it. And I just think that, uh, like you've been saying, it needs to be a major issue for Republicans because right now, like in the Supreme and the Ohio Supreme court, they've been slowly turning the seats. And this year they have a chance to take the Supreme court over the Democrats. If they continue on their trend, they've been doing it slowly over the last few years. And, I just do hope, like you, that people, that the Republicans do make it a major issue because if they take that away, I just couldn't imagine the amount of people who would be upset here in Ohio. Yeah, it's striking to me how, and again, this this goes with my theory. And Stephen, thanks very much for the phone call. It's it's good to hear somebody uh, from Dayton uh, that Republicans have got to make school choice an entitlement. I, I'm disappointed here in Georgia. Uh, in the governor's state of the state and, and the Republicans in the legislature, they don't seem to be moving forward on this here in the state. Uh, Wes Cantrell, a member of the state house here, he has a school choice initiative, uh, but I, I, the Republicans don't seem to be behind it at large. And it's such a no brainer at this point to do very much what Ohio sounds like uh, Stephen saying they do in Ohio, which is if you're in a failing school district, you get the uh, money from the state. It follows your kid, and you can use it to send them to a school of your choice. We should be doing this nationwide. Republicans, conservatives should be using school choice as a way to shake up the dynamics with Democrats. You, you, And you Republicans in Ohio who are listening, you should be using this as a campaign issue against the Democrats there because I bet it's very popular in the black community. Uh, as it is in, in other states that have done it, uh, disproportionately, it's minority, non-white families who use this. You should be taking advantage of this as a campaign issue to persuade non-white voters to vote Republican and become conservative because they care about their kids' education more than anything else, and you need to get them on board. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson, and yes, you can be a part of the program. I'm happy to have your phone calls. The phone number is 877 877- Nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. I I I got to talk about an issue. Some of you would prefer that I don't talk about. And I'm just putting that out there. Some of you wish I wouldn't talk about this issue, but I'm I'm fascinated by a development. The New York Times has a story. Let me just read you the headline. Doctors debate whether trans teens need therapy before hormones. 
And the subheading is clinicians are divided over new guidelines that say teens should undergo mental health screenings before receiving hormones or gender surgeries. Now, Abigail Schreier uh, is one of the leading writers in the country on this particular issue. And uh, let me give you some of her bullet points before we delve into what the New York Times says. There, there's a larger purpose here. This isn't really about this particular issue. It's about something else, but you got to get through this to get to that. She notes uh, the New York Times admits teens requesting cross-sex hormones are vulnerable to peer influence, vulnerable to irreversible fertility loss, may be in emotional distress, and may detransition. Just going to read you the up uh, the, the opening here. An upsurge in teenagers requesting hormones or surgeries to better align their bodies with their gender identities has ignited a debate among doctors over when to provide these treatments. An international group of experts focused on transgender health last month released a draft of new guidelines, the gold standard of the field that informs what insurers will reimburse for care. Many doctors and activists praised the 350-page document, which was updated for the first time in nearly a decade, for including transgender people in its drafting and for removing language requiring adults to have psychological assessments before getting access to hormone therapy. But the guidelines take a more cautious stance on teens. A new chapter dedicated to adolescents says that they must undergo mental health assessments and must have questioned their gender identity for several years before receiving drugs or surgeries. Experts in transgender health are divided on these adolescent recommendations, reflecting a fraught debate over how to weigh conflicting risks for young people who typically can't get full legal consent until they are 18 and who may be in emotional distress or more vulnerable to peer influence than adults are. Some of the drug regimens bring long-term risks such as irreversible fertility loss. And in some cases, thought to be quite rare, transgender people later detransition to the gender they were assigned at birth. Given these risks, as well as the increasing number of adolescents seeking these treatments, some clinicians say that teens need more psychological assessment than adults do. I'm going to leave it there. And there are some points here to make to the larger issue. And I realize this is increasingly a sensitive subject for people. There is a, uh, some people would call it a social contagion. In certain schools around the world, uh, particularly there have been a number of schools where they specialize in uh, education of autistic students when someone at the school who has some level of popularity transitions a lot of the kids also suddenly decide that they too are transgender. There clearly does appear to be a level of pressure in society. Uh, it used to not be something that people struggled with, and now you hear it all the time. And it's not just that it went on behind closed doors and no one talked about it. Yes, there were some that did, uh, but it also appears to be as more people talk about it, suddenly it becomes more of a thing. And why is that? What is going on in society that makes this happen? And a lot of studies do suggest that, in fact, there is a mental health issue. You're not supposed to talk about that aspect of it because it suggests someone has some level of insanity or craziness to them. And in some cases, frankly, yes, but you're not supposed to say that anymore. It's deemed impolite. And what we've seen in the medical and scientific community is that progressives have hijacked the conversation. 
So now it's just considered a normal thing. If you've got gender dysphoria, they call it. It's a normal thing to take action to conform your body to what your brain says you are. And it is a normal thing these days for people to believe that you can pick your gender. Biologically, you can't. And what's so profound is that in social media and social progressive circles in the media, it is becoming an asthma. You're not allowed to point out the biology anymore. You're not allowed to point out the science. And in fact, in many cases, they wish to pressure the scientists to be quiet or they want to elevate the pseudoscience. There is a body of research and researchers who believe that vaccines cause autism. They are wrong. There is no real credible scientific evidence that vaccines cause autism. There's a correlation and not causation. Around the ages that uh, autism appears is around the ages of a certain battery of vaccines. And people have, have confused the two, the causation and the correlation. But there is a body of evidence, and there are PhDs and MDs who believe that vaccines cause autism, and there are people out there who believe it. That is no different from the transgender debate, except members of the media who don't believe the pseudoscience on vaccines do believe the pseudoscience on transgenderism and have therefore elevated into a realm of science where it does not belong and bully, badger, hound, and harass anyone who says otherwise. What is interesting here is that the New York Times is publishing a story that actually looks at the science, and a growing body of scientists are now speaking out, and insurance companies and medical providers and those who have to pay for it are speaking out and saying, wait a second here, maybe we've gone too far too fast. Maybe we've allowed people to move too quickly. Maybe, just maybe, we've got it wrong and we need to rethink this. Now, the most interesting part of the story is not the story. The most interesting part of the story is the comments section. The comments section is where the demons of hell go to play on the internet, if not on social media. Never read the comments. The comment section of any website is proof that there is a hell and demons. And yet, there are 581 comments on the New York Times website about this story. And I have gone through them because someone called my attention. I think it was Andrew Sullivan in something he put on Twitter, called people's attention to the comment section of the New York Times story and overwhelmingly, the commenters are thankful for the story, saying, yes, we've gone too far too fast. There is something wrong when a, a, a large body of people suddenly think, wait a second, I'm not actually a boy, I'm a girl, never mind my biology, and then bullies you into silence. There is something wrong when there are, are indicators of who is going to have gender dysphoria based on background, based on family, based on abuse, based on patterns in life, based on social structures around them, based on mental health issues. There are patterns you can discern for the people who may decide that their body and their brain don't align, but you're not allowed to talk about it. You get bullied, you get silenced, you get punished, you get canceled. And a lot of people are starting to say, wait a second, we got we to gotta, we gotta speak up.
And I had to wade through it all of that to get to this. It's not just transgenderism where the politics trump the science and the progressives bully the scientists and elevate their views above actual science. It is biology 101 that you are born male or female and it is based on the first two chromosomes, the XY. Yes, there are anomalies, there are intersects, there's XYXX, there's XYXY, but it's those first two, XX and XY, that determine biologically, it's biology 101, whether you're a boy or you're a girl. You don't get to pick. But follow this out to the climate change debate. Follow this out to the conversation on COVID. Follow this out to a whole lot of other scientific areas. And what you find is that progressives decided long ago they could capture a scientific community and they could shape the pseudoscience and elevate it above the science. There are those within the climate change community. Listen, I I am more and more persuaded based on not the hysterics, but the skeptics who've come around on the issue of climate change. That yes, in fact, the world is getting warmer. And yes, in fact, we play a role in it. But, 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 you got to listen to all of it here before you jump to conclusions or jump down my throat. Uh, our role is is elevated disproportionately by those who have grievances and antagonisms against capitalism. And the nightmare scenarios are more to do with securing funding than without painting a real picture. Whether you believe that we play a role or not, I don't know that it's beyond dispute at this point that the climate is changing, but the climate always changes. In fact, it was warm on New Year's Day and then it got really cold and now there's a big ice storm coming to the southeast. The climate is changing. Climate changes every year. We have seasons, summer, fall, winter, and spring. We have histories of data. We have records of data. We can see what happens. But what really happens is that a certain group of scientists who are on the side of the media, the media is on their side, get to elevate their ideas and prescriptions above everything else, whether they're right or not. And so you know what happens? You get an army of skeptics who now doubt everything. You get cynics who say, I bet the only reason they're saying this is because there's a financial motivation. And what happens is the real science no longer gets taken seriously. The real science gets treated as skeptically as everything else. So on the issue of transgenderism, for example, there actually is a medical issue about gender dysphoria. People who, through some mental quirk, they're what they perceive themselves to be male and they're actually female or they perceive themselves to be female and they're actually male. They're, they're actually, is a, it's a mental health issue, but you're not supposed to talk about it like a mental health issue anymore. You're supposed to think it's normal that we get to, to perceive ourselves as, as male or female. We're, we're no longer allowed to talk about the mental health aspect of it. We're supposed to treat it all as, as normal. And you know what? I don't think it's a coincidence that it corresponds to in the age of shootings and the like, no one wants to talk about the mental health issue there either. We should be having conversations about mental health in this country on a whole host of issues, but no one wants to talk about it. I mean, you're the bad person. You're the bigot if you want to talk about the mental health issue. 
A whole lot of people want to shut down conversations on mental health, but the left in particular, progressives are censorious and want to shut down all hosts of issues. And what it's doing is it's undermining science itself because they're not willing to engage and speak truthfully about what the science shows or does not show. And that's not helpful to any of us on a whole host of issues, and we're all going to be worse off because of it. Now, if there's one area where I do want you to be better off, at least, my goodness, it's your cell phone bill. I got my cell phone bill the other day. Uh, so I've got two cell phones. I have uh, one that I've kept for a long time with a number a lot of people have. Then I have the super secret private one for Patriot Mobile. And I also wanted it. You know, I signed up myself. I actually didn't get the discount or anything. I didn't even use my name. Uh, and I should have because I get free activation to give myself credit. But I just wanted to see what it was like. And I can tell you, it's great because uh, you can go wherever you want to go, wherever you want to be in the state of whatever state you're in, rural or urban, and you're going to get good service. They use the same cell towers everybody else uses. Patriot Mobile, patriotmobile.com slash Eric is where you want to go. You can get 5G, you can get data, you can get voice, you name it, and they're great. Not only that, you get discounts, you're a first responder, you're a veteran, you're an NRA member, a large family, you got teachers in the house, y'all get discounts. And they use a portion of their profits to fund the conservative movement. That's what really makes it cool is you're doing business with a Christian conservative company that then takes a portion of the profits generated by you and uses that to fund the causes you care about. What you do is you go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You get free activation with my name. You can also call them. They have 100% U.S.-based customer service. There's no calling Mumbai or Bangalore for this. You're calling Americans in America at Patriot Mobile. Call them 972-PATRIOT, 972-PATRIOT. Tell them Eric sent you. You get free activation or just go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric today. This hour of the program is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan, Georgia. And I know some of you listening nationwide, you hear Noonan, Georgia is like, "Eh, I guess I can't use them. No, actually, they do business nationwide and they want to help you grow your business. If you need loans, large loans for your business, at a time a lot of banks are getting skittish on helping businesses, they want to help you. They make their own lending decisions. But we're talking big loans, 500000 and up. You need to build a building, buy a building, buy a fleet of vehicles, you name it. Go to FirstLibertyGA.com. FirstLibertyGA.com. Tell them I sent you. Spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them. FirstLibertyGA.com. Really, I could not do this program without them. They are helping me, and they want to help you too. All right. The phone number here, 877-973-7425. I was at my dinner table last night. Not going to cry. Not going to cry. I was at my dinner table last night. And... The Wall Street Journal sent out a push alert. Terry Teachout is dead. Many of you will not know who he is. Those of you who do are probably as upset as I am. Terry Teachout was the critic for the Wall Street Journal and for Commentary Magazine on, well, culture, the culture critic, plays, film, And he was not of New York, though he lived there. And he traveled the country to small playhouses around the country, to regional theaters and city theaters, watching plays for the sake of watching plays. And he wrote books on culture on Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong and others and H.L. Mencken, I believe it was, or or, uh, he was a fascinating person. He was a Midwesterner who believed that you could find good culture everywhere in the country, not just in New York City. And he was the nicest 
nicest person. His wife, Hillary, struggled. She had a double lung transplant. And it was during that time I got to know him a little bit, not well, but a little bit. And we would encourage each other with our wife's health. And he lost his wife. She got ill after her transplant. And he never thought he would love again, and he finally did last year. He was the nicest person you will ever meet. A genuinely kind soul. If you go into Twitter and you search for his name, you will find people from the very far fringes of the left to the very far fringes of the right. And all of them say nothing but nice things about this kind soul who took a nap yesterday and never woke up. It is... uh, Y'all, it's just, it's, it's sad to lose nice, kind souls like that. And I know many of you have no idea who I'm talking about. But if you've ever read Commentary Magazine or the Wall Street Journal... You have seen Terry Teachout's columns on culture, on plays, on film. Heck, the man got me watching old black and white French movies. It just, but he was the greatest encourager who would reach out on a direct message on Twitter in the middle of the night and just say he hoped you were doing well and and he knew you were going through something and he just wanted to make sure you were okay and that he was there if you needed him. And that's who he was. Uh, I did not, again, I didn't know him well, and I feel like I lost my best friend. That's just sort of the person he was. Uh, just what what a, what a great, great human being. We need more people like that in the world. Now, we need to move on, and I'm happy to take your phone calls. 877-973-7425. We got to spend a little bit of time on Kamala Harris and on... Joe Biden, we do. And also, speaking of cultural critics, on cultural criticism and how it's becoming so politicized now by people living in bubbles who can't relate to the rest of us. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution if you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business. First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com. 